<laughs> okay, great. Welcome everyone to Drisha's spring program and the first class of this session on rabbinic authority and personal autonomy in early rabbinic law. We value your active participation and encourage you to share your videos, turn them on, and ask questions either by unmuting yourself or by putting questions in the chat box on Zoom or as a comment on Facebook Live. This course examines how an individual's knowledge of their body and psyche impacts halakha, a fact that demonstrates the tension between that knowledge and rabbinic expertise and authority. The various topics to be considered include a sick person eating on Yom Kippur, the law of Nida, and the application of the Ma'is Alai claim within divorce law. It is my pleasure to introduce Dr. Ayelet Hoffman Liebsen. Dr. Libsen is a scholar of Talmud and Jewish law and serves as assistant professor of law at the interdis this ah, I have a hard time with that word interdisciplinary, interdisciplinary center <laughs> I apologize disciplinary center in Herzliya she receives a BA from the Hebrew University and an MA and PhD from New York University she's also a graduate of the Matan Advanced Talmud Institute and the Beit Morasha program in Jewish law in 2017 and to, till 2018, she was the Grass Visiting Professor of Jewish Law at Harvard Law School, and she has also served as a research fellow at the Shalom Hartman Institute. Her first book is entitled Law and Self-Knowledge in the Talmud. And with that, I'll turn this to you, Dr. Libsen. Thank you very much, Evie. It's great to be here, and I just realized that I left out the most important thing on my bio that I should have sent in to Drisha, and that is that in 2007 to 2009, um, we were living in New York, and I was teaching at Drisha then, oh. so that's uh, an important addition. <laughs> I remember okay. well. You were a great teacher. Thank you. Thank you. Um, okay, so... Um, we have three sessions to discuss rabbinic authority and personal autonomy, and we're going to be focusing on this topic in the Talmud through um, three, three test cases, basically, um, which you can read more about in my book. They're also all um, three, three cases that are developed in my book, um, and basically what I want to do is to kind of challenge, I think, some of the assumptions that we have as um, religious people and specifically as religious or, you know, not necessarily people who are interested um, in, in Judaism um, and in general in religions and uh, to challenge specifically what I think modernity has done to our thinking about um, about religious authority, okay? And I'm kind of going to say this very much sort of as the, the tip of the iceberg, but um, in, in response to, uh, in response to the development of different religious groups in Judaism in the 19th and 20th century, we also see the development of new theologies about the importance of, uh, of religious authority. And um, these kind of come to a head in the, in the 20th century, where we see a lot of contemporary Orthodox thinkers, especially, uh, who emphasize the concept of emunat chachamim, the idea, the, the significance of deference to rabbinic authority. And when we think about it, the idea of turning to rabbis for halachic guidance um, seems to be in tension with the idea of personal autonomy, right? First of all, if you just think about it in, in general, right? The, we know that many early sources and sources throughout the generations in rabbinic literature emphasize the significance of a person learning Torah and having everyone having access. There's a very democratic ideal of having access to Torah and to halachic sources. And so on a basic level, the idea of deference to a rabbinic uh, authority is also in tension with the idea that every person should be able to uh, study the text and gain their own answers and make their own 
uh, halachic decision-making process, right? Um, but more than that, we also find in the 20th century that the, this idea of halachic guidance from rabbis is sort of taken to a much more extreme point, right? And there's a whole doctrine or a whole theology of dat Torah or das Torah um, that develops in the, in the 20th century, which basically assumes that great sages don't only have expertise in specific areas, but actually that there's value in listening to um, rabbinic scholars in all areas of life, right? And that there's some kind of uh, divine guidance that great sages have that allows them to answer questions basically in any realm, okay? But even if we don't go so far as that theology of that Torah, um, also among more, uh, you know, sophisticated thinkers, I would say, um, of the 20th century, such as Rabbi Soloveitchik, for instance, we also find the idea, the importance of halachic expertise. Okay, so um, Soloveitchik has a very important um, essay called uh, Common Sense Rebellion Against Torah Authority, in which he argues that halacha is a system, and that system has a very specific logic and that trying to use common sense logic, logic that we use in other realms of our life on halakha is actually something of a rebellion, okay? Because it's not, you're not accepting the internal logic of halakha and that the only ones who can make decisions in the realm of Jewish law are those who have that expertise and those who understand the inner logic of the, of the rabbinic system, okay? Um, and so he says committing to halakha means surrendering common sense or everyday logic and embracing another logic, what he calls the logic of science, okay? So that is a very, very strong idea. And I just wanna say that it's not it's not only, obviously in Jewish law and in Jewish tradition, it has a specific um, flavor to it. But in general, when we think about religious systems, the idea that there's a religious authority who tells people what to do is a very strong idea that's been analyzed you know, in sociological tools and in philosophical tools. Um, and it's something that has a lot of power to it. And what I want to do in, in the three sessions that we have is not to say that you know, this idea doesn't exist. I certainly think that there are very early sources that promote this idea and that promote the significance of rabbinic expertise. But I also wanna show that sometimes there are um, Talmudic conversations that complicate this idea. And the way that I want to do that is by looking at three case studies in which we will see that there's kind of an argument or a conversation between different voices in the Talmudic discussion um, that pull in different directions. That on the one hand, we do hear this voice of rabbinic authority and rabbinic expertise and the importance of um, deference to, uh, to rabbis. But we'll also see that there are voices that are pulling in a different direction, that are pulling in the direction of um, the knowledge that belongs to an individual person, okay? So we're going to be looking at cases that have to do with um, a person's knowledge of their body or perhaps of their psyche as well, okay? And we're going to be asking the question of how does this uh, tension between rabbinic authority and personal autonomy play out when it comes to questions regarding a person's body, okay? Because that is perhaps the most fraught site of questions that have to do with deference to rabbinic authority, right? When I know something about my body, but there's a religious system in place that tells me that I still have to consult 
with an expert and I have to defer to what that expert says, then that there, there's two different kinds of knowledge here, right? There's the knowledge of the text, the knowledge of tradition that's in tension with a more uh, immediate subjective kind of knowledge. Um, and the question is, which of these is more significant? Which of these should be the one to, um, to triumph in this case, okay? So I'm going to, you have the source sheet in the, uh, in the chat box. Uh, if you want to download it for your for yourselves, I'll also share it here, and you can uh, play around with your own screen if you prefer to see the source sheet or if you prefer to see uh, to see me in a bigger square. You can adjust that for yourselves, and I'm sure after almost a year of this, you're all experts at that. Um, so the first case that we're going to be looking at today is. Um, a case which has to do, as I said, with, uh, with questions pertaining to a person's body, okay? And um, we're going to be looking at this through a very specific case, through what seems like a very narrow case at first, which has to do with a sick person on Yom Kippur, and whether this person can eat or not on Yom Kippur, okay? And the question is, who makes the decision whether an individual person who is sick and is feeling unwell on Yom Kippur, who makes the decision whether this person should eat or not, okay? So you can already see that there's, you can already imagine that there's going to be a tension here between what the person knows about his or her own body and what other people, what other experts are going to be telling this person to do, okay? Okay, now, um, in order to get a little bit of, uh, a little bit of background for, um, for this discussion, just hang on one second, I apologize. Sorry. Okay. Um, in order to get a little bit of background for, for the discussion that we'll see, I want to start with a source which doesn't have to do with a sick person, but does have to do with eating on young people. Okay. And this source is a source from the Tosefta of uh, um, Kippurim. Okay. So the Tosefta on Yom Kippur. And the Tosefta, the text which is parallel to the Mishnah from the same period of the Mishnah, the Tosefta says as follows, Tinokot samuch lepirkan, mechanchin otan bifnei shana ubifnei shnatayim, bifnei shtayim, bifvil shiehu regilin bemitzvot. So children who are approaching their time, so they're close to their bar or bat mitzvah, they train them a year or two in advance so that they will become accustomed to mitzvot. Okay, so that they'll become accustomed to fasting, and that's a custom that we know even until today. Okay, but now notice what happens in the continuation of the Tosefta. Rabbi Akiva haya mafteir bevet hamidrash bishvil tinokot sheyachilum avotehem. So Rabbi Akiva had to dismiss the bet hamidrash for the sake of children, so that their fathers would feed them. Okay, so what does this mean? This means that Rabbi Akiva had to stand up on Yom Kippur in the Bet Midrash where everyone was gathered for, for praying. And he had to kind of bang on the table and tell people, go home, feed your children, okay? So from this text, as well as from a few others, we can piece together a picture that what was actually happening in this period was that people were in fact not feeding their children on Yom Kippur, okay? And you can see from the continuation of the Tosefta that this wasn't something that was just kind of, you know, among the common people, but even amongst the greatest sages, because the Tosefta says, 
שלא רצה להאכיל את בנו, וגזרו עליו והאכילו בידו. So it happened that Shammai, the elder, did not want to feed his son, and they, apparently the other sages, decreed upon him, and they fed him with his own hand, okay? So basically they coerced Shammai to feed his son on Yom Kippur. So what do we see here? We see here that there's a tension between those people, apparently a common practice that was also practiced by some of the rabbis like Shammai, not to feed their children on Yom Kippur, okay? And we actually have evidence from later sources from the early middle ages about communities in Ashkenaz that relate that even children who were one or two would not be fed on Yom Kippur because they were seen as part of the community. And the idea was that the community needs to suffer together, needs to fast together, and that the cries of the children will open up the heavens and that will cause the prayers of the rest of the community to be accepted, okay? Um, and we see that the, rab that the rabbis are also objecting to that practice and they're saying, no, you need to go home, you need to feed your children, right? So what do we want to show from this source here? I think that what we see here is the importance of fasting, right? That even when there's cases that it's, there's, that it's clear that a person should not be fasting on Yom Kippur, that they should actually be eating on Yom Kippur, a lot of times people don't want to um, succumb to those exemptions, but they want to continue to fast or to cause other people to fast, even when it's not necessary, right? For, according to the, to the black letter of the law. Um, and I think that we recognize that phenomenon as modern people as well, right? I think all of us have probably experienced the experience of being in, being in shul on Yom Kippur and there's someone who actually should have been eating because they weren't feeling well or they're supposed to take some medication that goes with food and they didn't and then they faint, right? Um, so that's something that's very common. And the question is why? Why do people feel the need to fast so strongly even when they know that, that they have an exemption, that there's something that allows them not to fast, okay? So I'm happy to, I, I mean, I, I really would like to hear participation. So maybe some of you could, you know, respond to that question or, or tell me what you think about that, about why do people, even when they know that they don't necessarily need to be fasting, still insist on fasting on Yom Kippur? Yeah, Sigrid, you can go ahead. Mm -hmm. um, just as you were saying about being part of the community, you want to be part of the community, just as you were referencing the uh, early Middle Ages uh, communities in Ashkenaz. Okay, so, so it's important for people to be part of the community. Um, and, and I think it's also, you know, what specifically the community is engaging in, right? Because what, after all, it's not that, it's not that we're just you know, it's not like we're having a festive meal together, right? There's the practice that everyone is engaging in together is fasting. And what's the goal of that fast? The goal is atonement, right? So I think that many times people, you know, people feel very strongly about the power of Yom Kippur and the religious power of atonement. And that's why they, they fast even when, when there isn't, even when they don't, have to be fasting halachically. Carol? Um, I was, Rabbi, I was just gonna say what you just said because it's such a compelling, maybe the most compelling mitzvah is that people, regardless of their level of observance, know is to observe Yom Kippur and to fast because it is uh, one of the best or not best, but most practiced ways of atonement. And we have so much to atone for and improve on. There's a lot of, uh, like you said, communal understanding and obligation to, to literally fast. Thank you. Right. So first, so I think you're saying two things. First of all, is that it's a very 
um, strong tradition, right? Like in Israel, there's always, um, you know, um, like polls of what, what practices do most Jews in Israel engage in? And fasting on Yom Kippur is one of them that's kind of high up, not as high up as observing Lela Sedel or circumcision, but almost as high as those, right? So one of those is the power of the tradition and that this is such a broad communal practice. And the second thing is also the content of that practice, that everyone feels like they have something that they need to atone for. And people, you know, don't want to play around with them. Gela? Yeah, I think that uh, to a certain extent, you, can you hear me, Ursula? Yes, we can yeah. hear. Okay, great. Um, I, I think that there's something that's really visceral about, about fasting and about the, the notion that this is what you have to do to be, I, th I think there's, you know, something visceral about that's a sense of, um, let's say a sense of guilt about this is what you have to do to be like, you know, the minimal, the minimal good Jew. Um, because, you know, like was said, this is, this is one of the, this is, this is one of the big ones. This is the thing that people who never come to shul come to shul for. And, um, you know, people who, especially for people who are not otherwise observant, not otherwise uh, shul goers, it's like, you know, I've got this one thing. There's this one thing that I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to do all sorts of other things, but this is the one thing that I do. And if I don't do that, then I'm a terrible person. Um, right. So I agree. I think that that's, you know, there's, there's a, a, it's a very loaded day, right? And so we see that from these very, very early sources where even children are coerced to, to fast in order to kind of uh, atone for the guilt of the community. And even until today, when we see it, you know, very broadly, culturally uh, in the communities that we participate in. Now, I think that that's important to keep in mind because uh, as we go forward, we're going to see sources that take the discussion of fasting on Yom Kippur in a very medical direction. But I want us to keep in mind all the time that this is also a religious question, okay? It's a question that, as you said, it's very loaded with questions of guilt and atonement. And I think that that needs to stay in the back of our minds as we read um, the next sources, okay? So now we're going to look at um, the specific case that, that I'm interested in of a sick person on Yom Kippur, okay? And the first source that we have is the Mishnah. The Mishnah discusses two cases in the same um, Mishnah and juxtaposes them to one another. So the Mishnah says, Ubara shehericha, a pregnant woman who smelled food, ma'achilim Okay, they feed them until her spirits are restored. Okay, this is the version that appears in the best manuscripts of the Mishnah. In the printed editions, we'll find ma'achim ota, so they feed her. But the manuscript version says they feed them until her spirits are restored. Why do you think it says they feed them? Who's the them? Early gender inclusivity. The mother and the fetus. The fetus, right, exactly. What's assumed here is a very ancient idea um, that's found also in, in Greco-Roman sources that a woman's cravings derive from the fetus. Okay, so when they say they feed them, it's actually they're feeding the woman, but by extension, also feeding the also feeding the fetus. Okay, and notice that here the when do we know when it's enough? So the Mishnah says until her spirits are restored. So she basically is the woman is the one who says I've had enough, right? So she there's a kind of subjective um, line or point at which she says, okay, now I'm feeling much better. And then she can go back to fasting, okay? Let's see what happens with the sick person. A sick person, they feed him according to experts. If there are no experts, they feed him according to himself until he says, enough. So with the sick person, we see that the end of the Mishnah says, if there are no experts, then we feed him according to himself, 
to his own um, estimation of his needs, similarly to the pregnant woman, right? But ideally, what's the ideal situation with respect to a sick person? Ideally, we're not going to listen to what the sick person says, but rather we're going to listen to the experts, right? So this imagined scenario of the Mishnah here is that there's a person who's sick who's saying, I don't feel well. And then there's also some experts nearby who are going to tell the person whether he needs to eat or not, okay? Now, what's interesting about this word bikiim is that it doesn't say doctor, right? And we'll see later on that the Talmuds do take this to mean doctor. But in the Mishnah, it doesn't say doctor. And the word doctor does appear in the Mishnah. So the question is, why does the, why, if we're talking about a medical scenario here, why is the Mishnah using the word expert and not the word um, doctor, okay? Now, I looked into all the cases in the Mishnah and the Tosefta where the word baki, expert, is used. And it's very, very clear that whenever this word is used, it actually means legal halachic expertise, okay? So mm -hmm. we'll find, we'll find baki benegaim, baki b'sha'ot, so all kinds of areas of halachic expertise. So I want to suggest that here in the Mishnah, when the Mishnah says, it's also talking about someone who has legal expertise and perhaps someone who has the combination of legal and medical expertise, okay? So in the ancient world, we know that there was a very strong ideal of someone who's both a, a philosopher and a doctor, philosopher, physician. And I think that the Mishnah is actually um, connecting to that uh, cultural tradition and, and thinking about a baki as someone who has both halachic knowledge and medical knowledge. Now, why is this important? Because I think that the Mishnah is saying that the decision here is not only a medical decision, right? Because of what we said earlier, that for, it's so important for people to fast, even when they know that their medical situation is somewhat precarious, people often um, put themselves in you know, some kind of danger. They probably don't think that they're putting themselves in much danger, but people will take risks in order to fast on Yom Kippur. Um, and the Mishnah is saying, this is not only a medical question. The person who rules, the expertise that is needed to rule on this question is expertise both about the physical situation of the person, but also an understanding of the significance of Yom Kippur, okay? And I think that this, this was actually um, very, very relevant this past Yom Kippur during COVID because um, many people were told that even if they're just over a certain age, but, um, but, you know, and they don't have any specific medical issues, but they could have been exposed to someone and they don't want to uh, weaken their body, then they shouldn't fast, right? Um, and so understanding where a person is at a particular time, particular circumstances, what they've gone through, what they might be thinking about on Yom Kippur, it's not only a medical question, it's also a question that requires halachic understanding, okay? But what's more important to me to point out in the Mishnah here is that the Mishnah is actually advocating that what is most important for making this decision is that expertise. Whatever expertise we understand it to be, whether we understand it to be solely medical expertise or whether we understand it to be medical legal expertise, in any event, the Mishnah is arguing that the most important thing for making this decision is the expertise, right? Because basically, what is the Mishnah saying? The Mishnah is saying the chole cannot make this decision for himself. That's only in a less than ideal situation when there are no experts there. But if we can find the experts to rule on this matter, that's the preferred situation. 
and the experts will be the ones who will make the decision, okay? Now, for those of you who are holding the source sheet um, independently, I want you to scroll for a moment to the last page, okay? And on the last page, you'll see that we have um, a chart here, okay? Where we're going to use this chart to think about each of the sources that we're going to see uh, to think about different scenarios, okay? So if the Mishnah says that the most important thing is the expertise of the experts for making the decision, right? So let's think about the four different scenarios in this chart, okay? If the patient says that he needs to eat, right? And the doctor says that the patient also needs to eat, then they're in agreement and clearly the patient's going to break the fast and eat, right? Um, if the patient says, no, no, I'm really fine. I don't need to eat, everything's okay. But the doctor says, you know, from, from my expertise, from my knowledge, I'm telling you, you, you know, this could deteriorate, you need to eat. So also in that case, the halakha will be according to the Mishnah that the patient should eat. Sorry, right? question. Yeah. Is doctor here in the chart referring to a uh, uh... expert? Right, I just use doctor because we'll see in the Talmud that the Talmud, and we'll talk about that in a moment, the Talmud doesn't see this as a, a kind of more sophisticated type of medical legal expertise, but just supplants the word doctor instead of expert, okay? But at this point, yes, in the Mishnah, we can talk about expert, okay? So if the expert says the patient needs to eat, the patient's going to eat no matter what the patient says. But if the expert says, that the patient doesn't eat, then the patient's not going to eat. That's going to be the halakha according to the Mishnah, right? If the patient doesn't think he needs to eat, fine, that's no problem. Then they're in agreement. And then the patient, you know, someone else obviously thinks this person is sick, but the, both the patient and the expert don't think that he needs to eat, okay? But notice that in the upper right corner, right? If the patient says that he needs to eat and the expert says no, then the expert's opinion according to the Mishnah overrules what the patient thinks, right? That's what seems to be according to the Mishnah. So according to the Mishnah, this idea of, um, of expertise is very, very important. Um, and again, it's not, it's not, it's, it's an, it's in a way I would say that it's kind of, according to my interpretation of what the Baki is, it's kind of um, in a way similar to what I spoke about at the beginning of the shoe of the class um, about that Torah, right? That, that a, a rabbinic authority has knowledge in all kinds of spheres, including in the medical sphere, okay? And therefore they're going to be the ones who will make that decision um, completely overriding the patient's ideas about his or her own body, okay? So that's one model, the model of expertise. But we're going to see in the Talmud that there are other models of approaching this question and that even though, you know, the Talmud uh, reveres what's in the, what's in the Mishnah, the Talmud is actually going to rewrite the Mishnah in a sense um, and introduce different principles for approaching this problem. So now um, let's go on and look at the Talmudic discussion in the Babylonian Talmud, okay? And this is going to involve a little bit of kind of a critical Talmud scholarship to, to unpack exactly what's going on here, okay? So bear with me and if it gets a bit complicated, then just stop me and I'll, and I'll explain again. So first of all, um, the Mishnah cites the, sorry, the Talmud cites the Mishnah. It cites the words, right? A sick person, they feed him according to the experts. And then we have a Talmudic, uh, a, the position of an early Talmudic rabbi, Rabbi Anai, okay? He was an early Amorah. And I'm going to argue that his words are um, what's underlined here in the text. 
So you can see it already in the Hebrew, I'll scroll down a little bit for the English, and you can see that there are two different lines that are underlined, but between them, there's some more stuff that's not underlined. And that is a, a interjection by the Stamha Talmud, by the anonymous layer of the Talmud, okay? Um, so what does Rabbi Anai say? Amar Rabbi Anai, חולה אומר צריך, ורופא אומר אינו צריך, שומעים לחולה. So if the patient says he needs food, and the doctor says he does not need, right? And notice here that already the Talmud is rejecting the idea of the baki and just replacing it with the doctor. So it's, the Talmud is making this into an issue that's only a medical issue. And it doesn't have anything to do with halakha or with uh, religious questions of guilt or atonement, but it's trying to take it to, to the medical sphere, okay? Um, so Rabbi Anai says, if the patient says he needs food and the doctor says he does not need, they listen to the patient, okay? And now let's skip to the second state, statement of Rabbi Anai. So the doctor says, he needs food and the patient says he does not need food, they listen to the doctor, okay? So first of all, you can see here um, why I'm arguing that both of these are part of Rabbi Anai's statement. There's a very strong symmetry here, right? Rabbi Anai is considering two scenarios in which in each one, the patient is saying one thing and the doctor is saying the opposite thing. And we can see in the Yerushalmi that the two statements are phrased in a slightly different way, but they're basically, their substance is the same. And there they're both brought together, okay? Without those additional lines that we'll get to in a minute in the Badli. But you can see here in the Yerushalmi, <clears throat> if a patient says, I can fast, and the doctor says he can't fast, they listen to the doctor. If the doctor says he can fast and the patient says he cannot, they listen to the patient, okay? So you can see in the Yerushalmi that these two parts go together and basically they're identical to what we find here um, in the Bible. Now I wanna ask you, what is Rabbi Anai's guiding principle? It seems clear that his princ the principle that's guiding him is not the expertise of the Bikiim, right? Because if that was the, the, the guiding principle, then in each case, he would say, we listen to the doctor or slash expert for us, right? But that's not what he says. What he says is that when the patient says he needs to eat, we listen to the patient. And when the doctor says that the patient needs to eat, we listen to the doctor, right? So what's, what's the underlying um, principle or value that Rabbi Anai is putting forth here. What's, what's the most important thing? Sakana, I hear someone said, right. So what does that mean? We are on the side of leniency. Okay, excellent. We, we are on the side of leniency, right? And why? Why do we, why do we always prefer to be lenient? Pikuach nefesh, right? Basically, the idea that is underlying the, the words of Rabbi Anai here is safek nefeshot lehakel, right? In any case of doubt regarding lives, we always go with the more lenient view. So we see that in the words of Rabbi Anai, because Rabbi Anai is juxtaposing two cases. And in each of those cases, cases he's juxtaposing um, the one of the one of the parties who's pulling in the more lenient view and one of the parties who's pulling in the more stringent view. And in each case, he's saying we rule according to the person who is pulling in the more lenient direction. So if the patient says that he needs to eat, we're going to listen to the patient, even if the doctor says otherwise. And if the doctor says that the patient needs to eat, we're going to listen to the doctor, even if the patient says that he doesn't need to eat, okay? So 
In contrast to the Mishnah, right? And again, you can you can look at the different scenarios in the chart if it helps you for those who, who it helps to organize uh, more visually. Um, so if the patient says he needs to eat and the doctor says he needs to eat, the patient will eat. If the patient says he doesn't need to eat and the doctor says he does need to eat, he'll still eat. If the patient says he needs to eat and the doctor says he doesn't, the patient will eat. And if they both agree that he doesn't need to eat, then he won't, okay? Um, so I just want to point out that this is very different from the Mishnah, right? The Mishnah, the main principle for the Mishnah is the expertise. And we already said when we looked at the charts that that means that there could be a case where the patient says, I need to eat, I'm not feeling well, but because the experts say that the person should not eat, then the person should not eat, okay? And that also, that to us, I think, with our modern sensibilities, you know, I mean, I think you, can, you already know which position has won out uh, throughout the generations, right? Rabbi Anai's position of safek nefashot le'akel has become the much more dominant um, halachic position, okay? So to us, when we think back to the Mishnah and we try to just set aside for a moment what happened in the development of halakha throughout the generations and really read the text of the Mishnah on its own terms, it still seems a little odd to us because why, why would, would a, if a person says, I need to eat, why would a doctor be telling that person, no, I think you shouldn't eat? Right, like it seems, it seems so counterintuitive to us because to us, we would think that any case where there's a person is worried about their own um, bodily uh, uh, status, then of course the doctor would say, you know, you should, you should make sure that you're well, that's first thing, that's more important than the facts. But when we take into account the significance of Yom Kippur and its religious significance, not only for the individual person, but for the community as a whole, then we can maybe understand why we would have a scenario that a person would say, I need to eat, and yet the expert would say, no, you don't need to eat, perhaps because of a concern that this will kind of, you know, be something that spreads or that it will make Yom Kippur less significant for the rest of the community, okay? Um, so, so we see here that the Mishnah took us in the direction of the principle of expertise. And Rabbi Anai is taking us in a very different and more familiar to us direction of Safek Nefashat Lehaken. So really what Rabbi Anai is saying, the value of life is overriding, something that we know from many other areas of law, like uh, as was said here, pikuach nefesh doches And so also in this case, we're going to listen to whoever is the more lenient party who will take us in the case, in the direction of protecting the value of life, okay? But we're not done yet because between these two lines of Rabbi Anai has been inserted a discussion by by the anonymous layer of the Talmud, which according to most scholars uh, developed later, much later than the, this early Amoraic position, okay? And now let's read the Sugiya as it appears before us in its final form. So we'll go back to the first line of Rabbi Anai and we'll read it now um, in sequence. Amar Rabbi Anai, I said, if the patient says he needs to eat and the doctor says he doesn't need to eat, they listen to the patient. My tama, lev What is the reason for this? The heart knows its own bitterness. Okay, so we might have expected that when the Talmud says, what is the reason for this? The Talmud will say maybe, right? But that's not what it says. It cites a verse from Mishlei, from the book of Proverbs, that says the heart knows its own bitterness. What does this mean, the heart knows its own bitterness? Apparently it means 
that a person knows him or herself best, right? And that's why Rabbi Anai is saying that if a person says he needs to eat, then even if there's an expert who's saying, no, you can actually manage for the next three hours until the fast goes out, we listen to the patient because the patient knows him or herself best, okay? What's the problem with this? The problem is that it doesn't cohere so well with the second part of Rabbi Anai's statement, right? Because in the second part of Rabbi Anai's statement, Rabbi Anai says that when the doctor says a person needs to eat and the patient says he doesn't need to eat, then we don't listen to the individual, right? We, then we listen to the doctor, okay? So there's a little bit of a problem with that idea of it doesn't seem to go well with all of Rabbi Anai's statement, right? And so under the second underlined line in the Talmud, the second half of Rabbi Anai's statement, the Talmud again asks, my Tama, what's the reason for this second half of the statement? And here it answers something very different. It answers, Tun vahu he, he has been seized by a stupor, okay? So what's actually going on here? The Talmud, for some reason that we don't quite understand yet, but will soon, is saying it's, it's um, it's reinterpreting Rabbi Anai's statement. Instead of Rabbi Anai talking about the idea of Tafek Nefashot Le'akel, the Talmud is now rewriting his statements to take us in a different direction. So for the first half of the statement, um, that we listen to the, to the sick person, there the Talmud explains it that we listen to the sick person because he or she knows their body best, right? But then, there's trouble with the second half of the statement in which we say that if a patient says he doesn't need to eat, but the, um, but the doctor says that he does need to eat, we listen to the doctor. So in order to explain that part, the Talmud has to go to a kind of far reaching conclusion and say, oh, that's because in that case, when the doctor says that the patient needs to eat, but the patient says he doesn't, that must mean that he's just already so hungry and he's deteriorated physically that he's already gone into some kind of stupor or like half coma and he can't really assess his own needs anymore, okay? So this is very strange. Why didn't the Talmud just leave Rabbi Anai's statement the way it was? Why does it need to go in this direction? So I think that the Talmud is taking this idea of the heart knows from its own, its own bitterness from a later Amora, an Amora who lived about 150 years after Rabbi Anai, whose name was Mar Bar of Ashi, okay? And in the continuation of the sugiya, Mar Bar of Ashi says as follows. He says, Mar Bar of Ashi Amar, kol Amar okay? Any case where the patient says, I need to eat, afiru ika mea de'amrei lo even if there are a hundred others, potentially also a hundred experts who say that he doesn't need to eat, we listen to him. Why? The heart knows its own bitterness, okay? So here we see the origin of the idea that the Talmud is later reading into the words of Rabbi Anai. Because Ma'abar of Ashi is actually introducing a very different principle here, right? He's not adopting the Mishnah's principle of expertise, and he's not adopting Rabbi Anai's principle of the value of human life, safek nefashot lehakel. Instead, he's introducing a completely different idea. And he's saying the most important thing is what the person thinks about him or herself. Lev yodea marat right? And that goes against even what a hundred other people would say. So basically, I think that Malbar Ravashi is introducing here an idea of the individual's autonomy. It's kind of a proto-idea of patient autonomy, what we today recognize as patient autonomy, the idea that a patient knows him or herself the best. And that's what we need to listen to, okay? So we have here 
three models. The model of the Mishnah that says the expertise is what's important. Okay, and as I suggested, I think that includes medical and halachic expertise. We have the model of Rabbi Anai who says, um, we, we go with the value of human life, and we have the idea of Marbar of Ashi, which is later adopted by the anonymous layer of the Talmud, who tries to reread the statement of Rabbi Anai to fit this idea of and individual autonomy. Okay. Now, the interesting question is, Rabbi Malbar of Ashi, if we scroll down to the chart for a moment again, he's talking about a specific case, right? He's talking about the case where the patient says he needs to eat. And even if there are a hundred others who say that he doesn't need to eat, we listen to the patient, okay? So clearly, Gala, one more minute. So clearly if the patient says he needs to eat and the doctor says he needs to eat, he's going to eat. And if the patient says he needs to eat and the doctor says he doesn't need to eat, then again, the patient definitely will eat. Obviously, if they're in agreement that he doesn't need to eat, he doesn't, he won't eat. But what about the bottom left rubric where the doctor says that the patient does need to eat and the patient says he doesn't need to eat? So notice that both according to the Mishnah and according to Rabbi Anai, in that rubric, the patient will eat, okay? And what does that actually mean? If the patient says, I don't want to eat, and the doctor says that you need to eat, right? What does that mean? Does that mean that we're just going to tell the patient, okay, the halakha says that you need to eat? Or does that even mean that maybe we're going to um, coerce that person to eat, right? What exactly does that mean? So, I'm going to let Gela uh, comment, but I want you to think for a moment about this bottom rubric. What do you think is the halakha according to Malbar of Ashi? Yes, Gela. Are there other Talmudic situations where hunger is cited as a reason that a person's decision and judgment are not accepted? Um, no, we don't find specific cases that we say, you know, because a person's hungry, then, then we don't listen. And this is the main sugya where, where that is discussed. But we do find this idea in non-Jewish sources um, in antiquity that a person, if a person is very, very hungry, then you know they can be kind of confused. Okay. So what do we think about this bottom rubric here? According to Malbaravashi, if his principle, if his strong principle is the autonomy of the individual person, right? So clearly he's speaking about the case where a patient says he needs to eat and the doctor or other people say he doesn't need to eat. But what about if there are a hundred other people who are saying it's clear this person does need to eat, but the patient says, no, I refuse to eat. So what do you think is going to be the case there? You think the halakha is that we go with all the way? and the person shouldn't need to, need to eat according to halakha, or Ma'abaravashi's statement is only specific to the case where he says that he does need to eat. So Anyone have I, an opinion on this? I have an opinion. Yes. I came late to the class. It says, Neil, I'm Nachum Tversky with the red shirt here. So in that particular case, and what you're invoking about Marat show, that actually, can work in reverse. You know, you're positing it one way. What happens, you know, if a person has to take medication, but he, you know, against, if you will, medical science, because of his overarching commitment to what he thinks is halakha, does not want to take it. Um, and that could be medically um, you know, negative for him in terms of his own medical constitution. It's kind of the flip case you know, that you're describing in that last scenario. And there are many individuals like that you know, that I know um, that are seeking in that sense 
something that I don't know that existed. You mentioned it might. I mean, I know in the time of the Rambam, 12th century or so, but if it existed already in the second or third century, please edify me. But they, they're seeking, if you will, the intervention of some Rosh Yeshiva, some Rebbe who's going to say, you know, it's okay, perhaps because he knows science, um, and that would be hopeful, perhaps not, but he's looking for that theological and premature to rescue, you know, that person. Um, you know, I had such a situation with a relative who would not take medications over Yom Tov. I needed to intercede and call, if you will, a rabbinic authority that I knew both, put him on, you know, with this relative to basically overturn what this relative was going to do and as such took the medication. So you have those cases. Right. Um, so I think, Neil, that what you're pointing out, I think that you're bringing us back to where we started. That, I missed the first few again, minutes. This I'm isn't sorry. only a medical decision. No, 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 no problem. Um, but you're, you intuited what we talked about at the beginning, that this isn't only a medical question, right? That a person, that perhaps when the sugya says, lev which by the way, I don't have time to show this, but it's a verse that appears in other rabbinic texts that have to do with guilt and atonement. Um, that maybe what this, what Malbar of Ashi wants to say here is that the reason that a person has autonomy is not only because of the concept of the body and patient autonomy as we think about it in modernity, but because this per the person is the only one who can balance what he's atoning for during this year or during his life and how he's feeling religiously and theologically together with the medical situation. And therefore, he's the only one who can really make that decision. Now, as you said, today, because the Safek Nefashot Le'akel principle is kind of worn out, then we look for figures who are both medical and halachic figures who can kind of give gravitas to that decision, to the person who's kind of uh, worried about making that decision and, and say, no, this is the way of Torah. This is what you need to do now. You do need to break the fast, right? So it's actually Bikuach um, Nefesh Lachmir. Yes, that's what's won out. But what I, what I keep trying to point out is that in the early sugiah in the Talmud, this is before the idea that Safek Nefeshot Le'akel has won out. And we have here different models that are battling each other. We have the expert model, mm -hmm. we have the Pikuach Nefesh model, but we also have the model that the individual's autonomy is above everything else. It's above, it's above the expertise of the experts and it's above um, the idea of life itself, right? That, that preserving the individual's autonomy and integrity can even be more significant than the value of preserving that person's life. Okay. Um, wants to say something. I wanted, there was a lot more that I wanted to say, but we'll just take Carol's comment and then we'll sum up here. Um. Well, I'll keep it very short. I think your question about what would um, become the halacha, uh, Rav Ashi would, I think if uh, he was being consistent would say that the individual's um, autonomy wins out regardless of which way it were to go. And your point that you just made about only the individual knows his or her internal struggle to atone is very compelling. And also the dignity, let's say the individual didn't eat or didn't take medication and died as a result. It was still the dignity of the individual's choice. However, you could also argue that um, maybe the person, person's judgment, the individual's judgment is impaired by the medical situation that requires medicine or eating. Thank you. Okay, so what Carol raised is really great, and it just I can't I can't not go a few minutes over time now after what Carol said. So 
what I want to show you is how once we have those these three models of expertise, autonomy, and the value of life, they're going to play out again and again throughout um, mid, the response of the Middle Ages and um, the early modern period. We're not going to go into all of the sources that are on the source sheet, and you're welcome to look at them afterwards and think about how each source is adopting a different model. But I just want to look at one source, okay? Source number six, which is um, the response of the Rekanati in the 13th century. And he relates about the Riba, okay? One of the late Tosafists. And he says, I heard that Riba became ill with the illness from which he died. And at that time it was Yom Kippur. And the doctors told him, if you don't eat, you will certainly die. And if you do eat, perhaps you will not live. And he of blessed memory, the Riva, said, bari v'shema, bari adit. Certain and uncertain, certain is preferable. Okay, it's a halachic principle from a totally different area. Um, and he didn't wish to eat, and he died, may it all be bound in the bond of life. So we see here that the Riva himself was willing to take that risk, right? He wanted to end his life in, in, in purity, out of fasting and, and not out of breaking the fast on Yom Kippur, even though he knew that he was risking death. And this caused in the, in the Middle Ages, and you can see in source number seven that the Radbaz, Rabbi David Ibn Zimra in uh, Egypt of the 16th century, um, was asked about that case that people wrote to him and said, I heard that this is what the Riva did. And doesn't that mean that we should all be doing that? That if there's a case that we're worried on Yom Kippur, um, that we should still endanger ourselves in order to, to die in a pure way. And he, he you know, speaks very, very strongly against that. But he still needs to explain what the Riva did because he doesn't want to say that what the Riva did was wrong. So he says, okay, it's because the Riva lev yodea marat nafsho. He really knew already what was going to happen with him and he knew he was going to die in any case. And therefore he decided that it's better not to eat so that he will have that um, purity at the, at the end of Yom Kippur. So, so, we, so in summary, what we can see here is that first of all, it's not so simple that even though when the Talmud tries to take it in a very medical direction, um, the, the questions of atonement and the overtones of Yom Kippur keep coming back and popping up. And that the question here isn't only, it's not just a question of patient autonomy. It's also a question about who gets to make the legal decisions that have significant real religious and theological repercussions. And we saw three models. We saw one model that says the experts are those who decide. And as I argue, those experts are medical and legal experts. We saw a model that the value of life is the most important thing. And we saw a value, and we saw a model that really pushes the idea of the patient's autonomy even if perhaps he wants to endanger him or herself because the value of autonomy in and of itself um, is, so, is so significant. So this is a very, very early discussion from the Talmud um, that we see that the Talmud itself is pushing back against the, the model of the Mishnah and is complicating it and is not accepting the idea of expertise as, a, as an absolute but rather suggesting that there are other significant values. And in the next coming classes, um, where I hope to be in somewhere with better internet reception, um, we'll see other case studies that also um, consider these different kinds of models in other areas of law. Uh, we actually have a, a comment from uh, Facebook uh, from Noah Batmiri, uh, could knowing the bitterness of one's heart be that she would know if she's cheating herself out of the fast by saying she can't do it when she maybe could, she would have the guilt on her conscience. Uh, okay, I think that's a really interesting question. Okay. Um, because I think that that also shows us the value of the experts in these kinds of scenarios that 
people are concerned about making this kind of decision, right? Because there's, you know, you're saying to yourself, wait, maybe I really could fast and I'm just saying to myself that I can't or the opposite, you know, maybe I really need to fast, but I'm concerned that I might be doing something that's not permitted. And so the experts, we understand, you know, we can understand the idea that the Mishnah is saying for the good of the individual, him or herself, we want to have someone who's kind of external to the situation, right? Who can kind of give a more objective perspective. So you're presenting this monolithically as if sociology doesn't play into this. So if I were to fast forward to today's society, you know, some of it you'd think would fit nicely to use buzzwords, which I don't like to use, you know, within the modern Orthodox in terms of autonomy. Some of it would be, you know, antithetical to a more Haredi disposition that wouldn't necessarily move an inch without that authority. So your your presentation, you know, is excellent, but it has to take in, I think, some of these dynamics. Okay, so now, Neil, I do have to rebuke you for not being in the first few minutes of the, of the class, <laughs> because that is, that's exactly what we talked about, about how in the 20th century, the idea of, you know, das Torah and <laughs> deference to rabbinic authority, uh, it has, you know, it's become, it's become like, a, you know, it has, it's become something that characterizes orthodoxy. That's true. Um, and that's precisely why I want to show that in the Talmudic sources, we already have this debate going on with one voice pulling in that direction, but there are also other voices as well. Thank you, guilty. <laughs> I didn't mean to be harsh. I just wanted to be bring harsh. back to the class. <laughs> Thank Very you, Dr. Much. Lipson, for an interesting first class in this session. I'm looking forward to continuing next week. And thank you to everyone who joined us today on Zoom, on Drisha Live, and on Facebook. We continue our spring program this Sunday at 10 a.m. with the second class of the series, Your Name Shall Be Great, the Abraham Narrative. In addition, we have many more classes happening right now. You can find out more information as well as the registration links on our website at www.drisha.org classes or watch live at www.drisha.org live. A few of you asked me on the chat today, uh, there, we do save recordings of uh, previous classes. Uh, so if you go to uh, www.drisha.org live, you should be able to find um, this class and also the source sheet underneath it. Uh, thank you again for this opportunity to learn with you, Dr. Libsen, and for everyone who attended. Uh, we hope to see you soon at one of our upcoming classes, Adrisha. Thank you so much.